Welcome to a special episode of Your Hospital Ball. Sorry we've been away for so long. Today I'm with writer, broadcaster, and more importantly, occasional or regular York City supporter, Daniel Gray. Daniel, how are you? I'm all right, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I've been listening to this for a while, so I felt like I've known you for a long time through this podcast. Oh, that's, that's good. So, so born in Teesside, but you moved to York age three. So in terms of sort of being a two-team W, you know, with York and Borough, you've got a pretty decent excuse there, I think, lined up. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we moved to Cotmanthorpe when I was about three and my dad g- gave me the choice of his team, which was Leeds, because he's from Weatherby or, or where I was born, Middlesbrough. So we went to both. Borough drew three all with Aston Villa and Leeds drew nil-nil with Oldham. And if, if it had been the other way around, who knows the dark side I could have gone to. But in the meantime, yeah, started going to Bootham Crescent, age nine or ten, junior reds and all the rest, as we'll probably talk about. We will indeed. And yeah, such a sliding doors moment, wasn't it? And I almost think it's interesting that the first game that people went to, because mine was York 4, Wrexham nil in 1992. And I often think God, it could have been so much different. If I went a year, year before or two years before, sort of under John Burr, it might have been all different. I might not have even been sat here doing this podcast. You'd probably be a happy, but really happy person. <laughs> With a nice hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And interestingly, I think my second game that I went to was York City 4, uh, Hereford 2, which you sort of put in your notes as one of the sort of early significant games for you. So, And I, and my kind of memories of that are very vivid about being under the lights. And I think John McCarthy got a late goal in that as well. And, and he was sort of unplayable on the night. So I imagine your, your memories are very similar to my own. It's really funny what you think you remember and what you maybe remember off... VHS videos and now YouTube and things because I'm convinced I went to a game before that where York lost 1-0 to a team with black shorts and white shirts and for all I've looked through you know the Dave Batters book through the years and and the rest I can't locate which game it must have been but I do vividly remember the Hereford game midweek and and again the, the way football memories play tricks is that I remember Barnes scoring and being brilliant but when I look he never scored <laughs> but he, he must have been superb because I just remember thinking that all, I, I must have been what 10 or 11 and just thinking there's a footballer the, the pace of him and but yeah more than anything it's the floodlights isn't it it's the in common with millions of people that go to a floodlit match. And I, I still now, when I picture Bootham Crescent, it's always nighttime. It was it just had a different noise to it. It had a different, the, the air was different. It was almost the, the view. It was just, just everything about it was, that's how I remember Bootham Crescent from that that moment onwards. But yeah, we were both at that, that Hereford 4-2 when, when it, something special was finally stirring after many years of inaction that we never knew about. <laughs> and we could have been stood fairly close to each other, I guess, because I was in the Longhurst that night. I remember the Wrexham game, I was up, high in the stand and didn't see a lot and I think my dad was getting quite annoyed out was having it go on his shoulders all the time and then for the Hereford one he literally just dumped me at the front and said I'll pick you up at half time so I don't know who I stood with I don't know remember much about it other than it was a it was a fantastic atmosphere and luckily my dad did pick me up at the end because I would have no clue of how to get home or anything that night. Well, we were posh because we were in the main stand and that's the first time I encountered the wooden seats. I remember them very, very well and I have one now in my living room. I know you are also an owner. So. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Two, two sad people with uh, York City seats in, in, the, in the house. You mentioned Cotman for there. I think a, a bit of a hotbed of, of football in terms of York City. You, had, you used to go to Gordon Stanifus sort of soccer schools, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. At Sixth Form College, yeah. Brilliant. Highlight of the week was the visit from the York player. I always remember Wayne Hall, someone made fun of his Donald Duck keyring and he got really angry at a 10-year-old. <laughs> 
<laughs> tremendous memory. But yeah, I loved, loved Gordon Stanley. He was a brilliantly enthusiastic coach and such a nice man around the village. And I played football loads with Tom, his son, who was exactly a year older than me. Just the most brilliant player I've ever, ever shared a pitch with. And never thought he'd sign for York because he was so good, if I'm honest. And indeed, he went to Sheffield Wednesday, but that ended absolutely tragically with Tom. So nice to see his his sister being a footballer as well. There was a bit of a, not a happy ending, but a, a better ending to that story in some ways with that. But yeah, uh, absolutely. Sanifeth's good good cop figures at that time. Yeah, and Graham Crawford as well, I imagine. He, I think he's copman fought through and through as well, isn't he? From lived there since the 1970s. I don't know if you ever came across him. Yeah, definitely. Because footballers have a presence, don't they? They um, walk differently. And I I could tell, I, I remember him well. I, th- I think he might have come and coached us or played with us at the rec where we used to play. Um, I'm convinced of that. And especially hearing your podcast with him, that confirmed it, hearing his voice really. So yeah, footballing hotbed, I tell you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of going back to these sort of Tuesday night games under the lights, one in particular stood out for me that, that season, well, the end of it really, the Bury game at home. I think it's sort of folklore with York City fans and I imagine it'll have been exactly the same with you. I mean, it's sort of one of those night games as well in the summer where it's sort of, it's quite light, isn't it, the first half? And then, it, you know, the sun goes down and then it's it's pitch black the second half. And just the atmosphere that night was just tremendous, wasn't it? Gary Swan's goal, first goal of the season for him and incredible. I'm there now. I remember that really well because we weren't going, me and my mate that I went with, but his dad really late on, something like six o'clock, said, I'm taking, he was an Oldham fan and a brilliant, thick Lancastrian accent. And um, he, I don't know how we got in because I... I it's probably in some way, I, I remember queuing, I remember a bit stood crushed in the corner where people used to stand towards the end of matches as they drifted out of the Longhurst for, for that. I'd never seen Bootham Crescent like that. I didn't know it could be like that and that loud. Was it eight or 9,000 or something? Just Yeah, those moments just stick in your mind now. And I, I, it's a reason I, I cherish football, really. I would make that joke at the start about, about never having found football. But, you know, if you don't go to matches, you don't have those those moments, those bellwether moments in in your life that you can, you know exactly where you were when you were ten and what what you were doing and what it what it looked like and what it smelt like and I, that's that's a brilliant thing I think and that Bury game is one of the one of the earliest ones for me as well. Yeah, incredible. And did you get a chance to go to Wembley as well at that end of that season? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always remember at Wembley seeing so many people I knew that I played football with and from school and stuff, and you just thought there's no one left in York. When you look, there wasn't that many of us there actually mathematically compared to the population of town but it just it felt that way and yeah brilliant moments and uh, Wembley just seemed huge didn't it as well and I was on those half seats those bucket seats at the front without a back to them but I've still got my flag and my scarf from that game actually I'm a big big keeper of these things so I can hold that cheap silky flag I got outside and be transported back Absolutely. And I think as well, you mentioned there about it being so so big, Wembley. I remember sort of thinking, or, or it was sort of common sort of chat amongst the York fans that York completely outsung crew that day and, and that we were the only ones making a noise. And then I remember we got back to the to the tube after the match and they were saying the opposite. They were, they were saying, oh, you didn't sing the whole match. We're like, well, we did. I mean, it's like, how big is Wembley? But no, no one could hear if you were at the opposite side of, a, of the ground, of the stadium even. It was already my second visit because I'd been on, I don't even have to look it up, March 25th, 1990, Mother's Day, as my mum still reminds me, to watch Middlesbrough lose in the Zenith Data Systems Cup final to Chelsea where we were in the other end and same thing again with more fans there thinking oh the Southerners weren't making any noise as usual but they probably were <laughs> probably were yeah that, that's a blast from the past as well that, that competition 
the zenith. Yeah, bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the Anglo-Italian Cup. Yes, I quite agree. <laughs> Another thing you, you mentioned in your notes as well, something I'm very jealous of, is that the Brighton away game, which was the midweek one, you, you missed your SAT exams to go to it. Yeah, I can, still can't believe that, really. A few years later, wasn't it, after... And the next season after that, the, the Stockport playoff is in my mind, I think, it, and then the game just before that, one-all draw to qualify, Wrexham or someone like that, really piling it down with rain. And even, this is this is how sentimental you get. Moving Crescent in the rain now seems impossibly romantic, romantic to me. It probably wasn't. But yeah, a couple of seasons later, um, the threat of relegation, the, the postponed, the abandoned even game at the Goldstone ground, and then sort of begging my mum, can I go? It's on a Thursday morning and, and these SATS exams, everyone's saying they don't mean anything. And I don't, I'm not sure they even did. Do they exist anymore? I'm not sure. They were shortlifting it. It was an English SAT and somehow she said, yeah. And my mate Jason's parents said yes as well. And someone must have gone into town and got our tickets. Uh, I remember we got, must have been official coach down Dodsworth, I bet. And my, uh, the coach journey, all I remember is Charmless Man by Blur must have been in the charts because it, it played maybe 20 times on the way down. I came to really hate it. By I was always an Oasis man anyhow, and I came to really hate it by the end. But yeah, uh, that that's, and then you remember bits and bobs of the game. I remember I think a goal went in off the post, but just this, looking back on the surreal nature of being at a match, on a Thursday morning is it I'll never repeat that it's just almost impossible isn't it and skyving an exam god knows what time we set off I think maybe four three I, I just don't know I don't know how I conned my mum into it I'm, I'm surprised I'll have to ask her and it was all tickets as well because I, because I remember my uncle went to it but he, he didn't have a ticket and he had to watch it on someone's garage roof I think they were selling sort of tickets out that way and uh, I, I managed to listen to the game me, me and a friend at, at school also called Daniel this is very confusing three Daniels we managed to persuade our history teacher to let us borrow let him lend us his radio for over lunch. So we would tune it in like the old transistor radios to to, to sort of uh, listen to Barry Parker tell us how how York City had uh, you know taken a three one lead or one three one. It was yeah special times, wasn't it? D- different times, should we say? Yeah, I, I'd never really looked again at it until until trying to place when that kickoff was a couple of years ago and uh, there's a news item where Michael Knighton has uh, gone all the way down because I think Carlisle were the ones who were relegation was at stake for them and he was there as well and it's just there's a, there's a there's more drama in that that storyline than I, than I realized as a kid it's a uh... I think he offered them money didn't he he offered them a big because Brighton had nothing to play for he offered them a big sort of bonus if if they could help Carlisle staying up but um Gary Bull paid paid to that, I think. And then um, another thing from your notes, which which again is really interesting. In fact, I think you told me this story when we were in the pub once. The first time you ever got drunk was with a York City player. Yeah, Martin Garrett. My, my girlfriend at the time, the her parents that they lived on Grosvenor Terrace, and um, they had quite a bit of room. You know what the size of those houses is like, and they decided to start taking young players in, and. This one that turned up on a Monday one week was this lad from Middlesbrough as well, Martin Garrett. So we had that in common, that that York and Middlesbrough thing going on, and uh, got on really well from from the start. Martin was always, uh, you know, he had he had issues. Like, that, that's what we'd say now. He had certain, you know, problems and things. But he was a brilliant, such a friendly lad, and that led to him taking me to the pub when I was. Well, let's think when that was when I was six. 16 or 17 and the first time i was ever ever properly properly drunk we were doing tequila slammers in the middle of the afternoon 
on one of the pubs on, on Bootham, the White Horse, I think it was. And I just remember that first ever feeling of being drunk in the daytime, and you never recover from that, do you? And telling my girlfriend's mum that I loved her. So that was all Martin Garrett's fault. And he was a, a, a wonderful player. That full season he played, which ended in relegation. I mean, he would have played in the, the Man City win, I would think. He certainly played on the last game when they lost there. And I always remember about him, that left foot that could just switch the ball so beautifully. And when he was we were having our Sunday dinners, he was... He was going to having trials with different clubs. Leeds took him on for a bit and there was rumours of a million pound bid and he was down at Wimbledon under Egil Olsen for a week as well. The welly man he used to call him. Just a wonderful footballer. And and then a couple of years ago, I was emailing the dad of that, that girlfriend, Emma, from back then because he was buying a book off me and he said, oh, it's tragic about Martin, isn't it? And I thought, I don't know anything about Martin. So I Googled him and yeah, awful, you know, awful what happened to him in the end, just spiralled with with various problems and things and, and died young back in Middlesbrough so a horrible end to that story but I still have happy memories of him and, and, and knowing a footballer is brilliant now but when you're a teenager it's just the best thing possible I think. <laughs> we, we've starstruck with him then when you're in the pub and probably why you were doing tequila slammers to, to calm the nerves down. Yeah, completely. And just him referring to other players by the first names and giving you gossip and stuff. I remember when, I think I remember when Neil Thompson went because Martin had this yellow sports car and he rolled up outside the house and said, Gaffer's gone. So I think it must have been Thompson that went, or could it have been Little? I can't remember the exact timelines of it, but getting that gossip that the manager had gone from a player, just, yeah, tremendous. <laughs> yeah, probably was Alan Little, I think, because... I, I remember getting Martin Garrett's autograph at Notts County away. That was Alan Little's last game. I think it was 4-2, probably around that time. Right, so it must, must have been that then. Yeah, and then Tomo took over, didn't he play a manager? Yeah, yeah, that didn't end well either. Sort of, you mentioned, sort of touched upon it earlier, sort of junior Reds and sort of being a ball boy as well. Were, were you kind of, I wonder if your experience of being a ball boy was like mine, where it's sort of, you were given that one-size-fits-all sort of gear, weren't you? And I, I was a really sort of small lad and I looked like, I looked like the end scene of big, you know, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, exactly the same. And <laughs> running out and people sticking V's at you when you had to do that wave in the centre circle. <laughs> and then I was, yeah, a lot behind the goal in the longest, probably the worst place you could be. But I remember my dad was behind me watching, which was good. And uh, I do remember controlling it in my head beautifully <laughs> and passing it back to Dino. I'm sure it must have been. Um, and it probably wasn't. I probably just toe-poked it past him or something. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, those those uniforms, I don't think they ever got a wash either, to be honest. <laughs> and the Junior Reds, I always used to think that. How does Paul Baker know it's my birthday? You know, when you used to get the card and you threw the post when it was your birthday. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I noticed I've still got my pass and it's signed by, uh, remember Ricky Sprager? Is that how you pronounced it? It's signed by someone else, Sprager. So I wondered, I presumed that was his wife or something. That says something nice and homely about the club. But yeah, I've still got my card, one of those one of those lovely souvenirs I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. And then um, obviously in sort of more recent times, you, you're very sort of well known for for buying a, a turnstile that used to be at Boom Crescent. Just you know, sort of two things, really. One, one sort of tell us a story about how that came about, and two, how, how did you get that past your wife? I'm still not sure on the second count. It was a genuine piece of research because I, I watched the auction because I wanted to write a story about who was buying stuff from the ground and when the ground goes. Where is it scattered? What are the stories behind the different people? But I, I also registered for the auction to be able to watch it. So there must have been a seed in me that thought, Fun's not that bad. You should you should go for this, and it got to 
early ones went for quite high 300 400 500 and this one was just lingering at, at 280 and i clicked the button thinking can't but you must be a screen after this one for you to properly bid but there wasn't that was it it was sold to the gentleman in edinburgh i've not even mentioned the fact to live in edinburgh and so absolute moment of shock exhilaration um, and all of the rest of it and just the realization of how the hell i think i think it was held it was in scarborough in a, in a warehouse somewhere and then just phoning my wife and saying I've, I've done i've done something she was like what's wrong I bought a turnstile and, and at that moment she sort of went quiet and and then, and then yeah it, it sunk in that and for a couple of weeks I was negotiating with them of how to to get it here and in the end two men with with Ven uh, brought it up and left it in the street where it was for another week before we worked out how on earth to get it in the garden. Right. <laughs> maybe someone didn't didn't steal it. Or maybe maybe it's not not as kind of. Uh... <laughs> it's it's important. That's the, that's the only thing I, f- I felt sure wouldn't happen because it was a, a proper two man job with the the wheels to that we put underneath it on these little cart things just to pick it up. It's it's unbelievably heavy. It's never ever moving again. It'll if we ever move it, it'll just come with the house. I think. But it's a, it's it's a beautiful thing I, I always wanted one especially one that meant something to me like one I'll, I'll have gone through at Bootham Crescent Tony Cole showed me he had a photo of the exact gate it was from um, which was brilliant and uh, I look at it every day I, I go and sit there with my stand on it with my cup of tea and it, it's good it relaxes me I, I, I clank it I, I push myself through and the number goes up and the clanking relaxes me it's a beautiful noise and takes me right back right back to the times good and bad usually you just remember good times with York they don't you say just good times <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean, let's let's move on to your, your kind of uh, career as a writer. I mean, w- was it always a dream for you growing up? Did you, where did you get the sort of passion for writing? Was it at school or? Or was it after you left school? I never thought I wanted to be, you know, looking back and when I said I was someone as a teenager that went on about wanting to be a writer or anything. But when I look back, uh, stuff at my mum's house, there's loads of these comics that I've made, all football comics that I've made up where I've made loads of teams like Dan United versus Dan City and done loads of league tables, uh, uh, just endlessly stuff like that. Sure, we didn't know each other back then. That would have been good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> endless stuff like that and scrapbooks i've got a great york scrapbook several borough ones always doing these little things and then just recently i was tidying tidying stuff up in the house and i found this diary from 1995 and it was chocker and i thought i don't remember keeping a diary this is going to be mortifying it'll all be about girls that won't go out with me and i open it up and it's just full of match reports york and borough but not really much to do with the matches so i was obviously already watching the crowd and things like i write about now and the little things that happen like there's a note at one game that uh, the ball had, was someone was down for an injury and Andy McMillan had thrown us the we, we'd gone through one pound transfer and into the pop and there was a little note saying Andy McMillan let us head the ball back to him and I remember that so instantly and so well <laughs> um, so it must have been in there that I was already making notes and wanting to write things down but certainly not at school I couldn't stand school I was at uh, school Tad Grammar because um, that was our catchment area for cop half an hour on the bus every day ridiculous and <laughs> um, I, yeah I really didn't like school and only really went to play football Ball. and then sixth form college was brilliant i had great english teachers there that that helped me see there was something in there that i like telling stories uh, and then went on from there up for the borough fanzine fly me to the moon i've just done a piece for them today actually it's still going and and it, it spiraled from there really i i just kept writing and writing for the fanzine i must have done maybe 60 or 70 issues in a row of uh, and i guess that's i didn't know it at the time but sort of developing the uh, if i want a uh, craft if I, if I might call it that and then 
carried on with When Saturday Comes magazine and other magazines and then on to, to books. So I always thought if I could make some of my living from football and writing about football, I'd, I'd be happy if once I knew I wasn't going to be a footballer and I've managed to do that now. So it's something, I suppose. <laughs> and do you still get the same sort of buzz seeing it in print? Because this is your, I think, book number 11 for you. Do you still get that same sort of buzz as you did for the first book that you ever released yeah absolutely it's all at the same moments as well so there's a moment when the publisher accepts the idea the moment when they pay you that's good and all the different stages still give you that buzz but nothing like when your box arrives and you see it's not seeing your name in print because that would be egotistical it's just the ideas you've had and typed out in word and you can remember exactly where where you were when you typed certain things or i can anyhow and seeing them in that form and ditto with magazine articles newspaper articles still i'm not a screen person I don't really read much on screens. I've got far too many paper books. And so seeing things in print is is as good as it was when I first had my, you know, my first fanzine article in what, 2002. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had that written down there that I, I, I kind of have this, I imagine that, that you like the sort of smell of a book rather than sort of like something that's available on a Kindle, for example. Yeah, and, and it's lovely that books have... The, the the sort of decline of them was predicted when Kindles came out and things. And Kindles are a great way for people to find books as well. And I, I know a lot of people who do both, but for me, it's the the physical object. And we never really had many books in our our house at all. It just wasn't. I think we had we relied on the mobile library in COP, and then we actually got a a, a full time library, part time opening hours library in the precinct. And that was and York Central Library was massive for me as well. We used to come into town probably once a week and get books, usually football books, but I can still smell that place in a really happy way. And I, I love to go back there when I'm when I'm back home. So yeah, physical books all the way and a ridiculously big football book collection among that of, of obscure titles, yeah. And what would, just before we go on to uh, your new book, what would be your favourite sort of all-time football book? I think Harry, The Far Corner by Harry Pearson, and as we might mention, the, the fact I've ended up doing a podcast with him is surreal to me because I wrote to him when I was probably just after uni or even before the end of uni, asking how you be a writer. And he sent me this lovely letter that I've still got, just self-deprecating like he is. And so it's been a, a really nice turn of events in life that the author of my, my favourite football book, The Far Corner, has ended up being a bit of a friend, really. And The Silence of the Stands, your, your new book, I mean, the premise is basically because because obviously football was cancelled during the pandemic and you kind of made this vow that when football reopened, you wanted to be there as as much as you could, basically. And, and I must admit, when, when you sort of said you were going to send me a copy of it, I, I kind of presumed that this book was going to be kind of using your media connections and, and sort of being in the press box. But but it, it's certainly not as it is. It's about you being there as, a, as a, a pure supporter and the kind of grounds and the games you go to, you know, you go from sort of, you know, your beloved Middlesbrough to, to watching Taddy Albion away from home. You know, it, it's a very sort of wide range of, of sort of games that you get to in in this sort of time period. Yeah, I've always written from the terraces. Really, I've never I had a press pass and never done it that way. I, I've had I have huge admiration a for the people like David Flett and things that brought the stories to us when I was growing up, and then in Latin, in recent years, the the young writers that have to churn out nine or ten articles a day about uh, the same team, but and writers that can do on the whistle reports and things. But I've never been able to do that. I've always been about being in, behind the goal, preferably. Uh, watching the fans, taking in the whole day, concentrating on certain players because of the way they run or something that I can write about. So it was always going to be like that. I, in the end, I had to do a few 
behind closed doors games up here in Scotland, especially because that was all they had here. And I, and I did want, I wanted to write about that because I wanted to capture what the sound of football was like in that time and, and get it across to people that couldn't be there, particularly the sound. And, and so, no, it's very much about the, the heart and soul of the game, which uh, which is what I'm really in love with. I've hardly watched any of this World Cup, even beyond any political distaste for it. I just long to be in, in these places. I long to be in Workington, Dan. There you are. <laughs> I mean, the, the book is as much sort of trivia, history, and travel as it is football, really. And I'm sort of conscious that I don't want to give too many spoilers away for for people who are listening to this podcast. But there's some very humorous sort of tales in there, sort of gallows humour. I mean, right from the first page, quoting a man saying about about the kind of seriousness of COVID, it must be bad if for cancelling Northern League games. You know, it just sort of shows the sort of humour of these people on the terraces. Yeah, it was the publisher that came up with the Finding the Joy subtitle after they'd read it that said, you know, there's loads of bits in this where you've eked out uh, happiness in in the bleakness of of what we were all living through, and it was there. And I, those moments were more pronounced because of what we'd we'd lived through, really. And like the, I remember being at Cowden Beath for this cl- behind closed doors game in December, that that awful December when there was a mu- mutant variant about to be about to be released, like it was a record. And then, and and there was a moment when Cowden Beath scored, and the players all piled on top of each other, and they were just the noise they were making, the cheering, the hugging, the the happiness of it all. And I thought I haven't heard a happy sound for ages because we weren't, you know, couldn't go to a pub and hear people laughing. I haven't heard people on corners having a laugh. Just to hear hedonism like that. So all of those moments were felt extra, and I wanted to get them across. And yeah, and I've done a few football travel books now, and the very best because because I can't drive. The very best things I heard on buses and trains are really useful to me. I was just thinking because it's nearly, nearly Christmas that well, I think I put this one in the book that on on a bus two people two women were going on about which chocolate they liked at christmas and one of them said i don't like those bounties i can't stand that defecated coconut <laughs> and there are just moments when you hear lines where you think i've got to write this book that's tremendous yeah i mean i've got that as a, as a question for, further down that it's sort of clear from your writing that you love sort of listening to other people's conversations when i wrote it i thought god he probably thinks i think he's right nosy bugger but but it's more of that i didn't know whether that was because you you you're wanting to sort of eat these sort of conversations out and, and observations of society, or whether whether it is just a kind of hobby, as it were. Yes, it feels it feels like it. But I, I love. I mean, I really love stand up comedy, and some of my favourite comic series are things like Phoenix Nights, that are just full of lines that I imagine Peter Kay and Dave Spikey and people just heard every day and maybe adapted them for that purpose. But I've always loved that, especially in the north. And the book ended up not getting any further south than Southport because of the, the restrict, new restrictions and things and uh, and because of the abandonment of divisions, and uh, as we know well with York. And it's just, you can't travel in this country without hearing at least a couple of things that make you smile about the way, especially in the North, about the the, the lines, that, you know, you, you go into town tomorrow, you'll hear something good. It's just the difference is I tend to write it down and put it in a book. I do change names though, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, another one as well, like what, what made me sort of laugh out loud was, was uh, I think it was a, an assistant referee who, who looked a bit like Colonel Sanders. And uh, and sort of after a while, someone shouted, that's finger-licking shite liner. And it's just that sort of, you can imagine that, that being said on the terraces. You know, we've all been there when people have shouted things that make you chuckle. But like you say, you don't, you don't unless you sort of etch them into your memory, you just forget about them, don't you? But you've got that thing where you, you kind of write them down and, and, and kind of bring them to life. Yeah, and 
you have to sort of take the slings and arrows of funny looks because you've got a notepad with you because it doesn't go it doesn't always go down well <laughs> people sort of what's he writing down I, I've, I don't think I've ever been mistaken for a scout put it that way but yeah the brilliant moments and better at I'm convinced better at games where you can stand uh, it's a bit lost in this whether people are embarrassed because they can be easily seen who said things whereas the standing's quite anonymous isn't it so the terrace is a lot funnier than the, the seat one of the things in the pandemic as well was a lot of these sort of games were getting streamed weren't there and and one of the stories again I forget which game it was but there was a there was a kind of artificial intelligence camera that was set up to kind of follow the ball wasn't there but unfortunately it kept picking up a bald linesman instead of a ball a bald linesman in Inverness yeah and the air fans the air united the away team they missed their only goal because it was following the linesman's bald head running up and down the line but so you, you know it was clear that dark humour was there from the start we, we knew how horrendous COVID was and, and missing football wasn't even in the worst 100 things about COVID but all the same it, it went on and we missed it and when it did come back I wanted to record things like that because the, the surrealism of it was, I already can't believe it happened and I've written a, a bloody book about it yeah, and I think I think you sort of you felt guilty. I thought as a football fan for saying that you miss football because you didn't want to admit it because, like you say, there were so many more things that were important in life, and and that, that's absolutely right. But but it is such an escapism for people, isn't it? And and myself included. I mean, I've had you know as, as you know I've had a difficult time this year with certain things, and and it is it is that kind of you can go there for ninety minutes and forget about life, can't you? And and that's kind of not having that every week was quite depressing to some people. Yeah, I felt that guilt at first as well. And then I just realised it can't be that wrong if so many of us are feeling it. It's not selfish to want to be part of your routine and to have those anchors in life. The fixture list's an anchor and everyone kind of needs anchors, I think. And I feel a bit feel a bit sorry when I'm those Saturdays when I ain't got a match and I get to see what it's like for other people because <laughs> by one o'clock I'm just going off, off my head. So I, I, I got rid of that guilt and I thought, no, this is a, a real emotion. And there's, the, you know, the, the stories within that, aren't there, about fellas, especially men that, that go on their own and go into football is the only thing. And we can all think of some, I imagine, that it's really the only time they get out and do stuff and speak to people. So, we know how bad men are at that and and so that that that's valid is that that's a, that's a really valid thing and and yeah I had to shed that when I was writing this book I address it early on in the book just saying look I know there's much worse god I watch the news every day I cried like everyone else at the the figures and the stories and things but it, it was a it, they're valid feelings and and, and uh, I don't think we should be ashamed of that I mean you've got such a great way with words I mean uh, you know and you paint wonderful pictures and when you're reading the book it, it is as if you are there and you mentioned Southport earlier but I picked up on sort of a, a line that you wrote there the, the vapours of donuts, chips and other deep fried wonders frolic the air and it, and it was just almost like you were there with you at, at Southport, I mean are these uh, how much have these sort of deliberated these words of have just come to you naturally because it, it sort of reads, it reminded me a little bit and please don't take offence of sort of Morrissey's autobiography, some of the sort of way that you, you almost write them as if they're sort of lyrics really. I, I don't mind that at all, it's just nice to be read um, Dan and, and to be asked questions to be honest with you I, uh, yeah it's, it's off sometimes I write little things down in the moment but more I take I take a long I'm quite a slow writer so some people will do thousands of words a day and I'm very much happy if I get 500 done and I do take a long time on my similes and imagery and things like that just I don't I can't help it's not for everyone either and I know that I've seen that in a couple of online reviews and things but it's it, after a while of doing it you think that's that's my voice it, it might change over time as well I hope it does it's nice that, that writing develops even within within the same writer but yeah, I do 
really want to entertain. I do. I'm never going to sit and write a match a, a match report about who kicked it where and who scored who was offside and what the transfer rumours were. I want to talk about you know what a player's fat ass reminded me of and stare out the window thinking of the right animal for hours on end <laughs> i mean towards the end of the book i mean there's a great piece about your sort of last look around booth and crescent where you sort of did your your sort of your match day rituals sort of one last time the sort of journey walking down there and and you were afforded one last sort of look around the ground which was I think unexpected for you. you just sort of asked whether it was all right, I think. And they sort of said, oh yeah, you can, which was such a poignant sort of moment for you, I think. And also it kind of ties up things really nicely in the book as well. I mean, what, what was that like, that, that kind of one last look round? I'm really glad I did it. I feel emotional just talking about it. And I, I cried a couple of, it's ridiculous the amount of tears I've managed, mentioned here, but it was just, I think also our, all of our emotions were very much heightened by, by what happened during that time and going home, getting my, my wooden seat from, my mum she'd picked it up from Booth and Crescent she lives still lives in town and um, walking across town yeah like you say away from the Minster Bells and uh, under Booth and Bar and my old route past the pub where Martin got me drunk and uh, past past Emma's house in fact because you do you see you see ghosts of your past when, when you walk especially without other people there like that day and then the two programme fellas were were empty in the programme shop uh, I used to get my one pound bundles from there and so I chatted to them for a while and, and just stared at the outside of the ground and then yeah as you say the, the, the two men that took all the seats out were there and I just thought I'll chance my arm and they were happy for me to, to go in and what having the stand to yourself I went in the gents and everything I even saw the the away end toilets for what I could hardly remember seeing in my life before just wandered around for a good long time hearing the the pigeons cooing and the different noises the ground was making now but always always picturing trigger at the front and and and, and back to memories like that it's, it's, it's an incredibly sentimental sport and thing to, to follow isn't it and yeah that that tied up the whole theme really of football's absence I think knowing that it would never be back in that place and reaching acceptance that Bootham Crescent was going so we still right until right until the bulldozers came in I still thought a miracle might happen ridiculously but and they weigh in toilets that's just a wall isn't it I think <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was the. I've got some good pictures. Is it a porter porter cabin? Was the women's toilet? I'd never, I'd never noticed that before. I certainly never taken a photograph of it before either, because you can be arrested for such things. <laughs> yeah, what 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 a moment! I'm glad glad to have to have done that, but really really sad. Uh, we'll finish off uh, coming back to the book, book soon, but just wanted to mention the, the When Saturday Comes podcast that, that you host. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you, that you, you've kind of written some some articles for them in the past. And uh, I mean, it must be such fun to do. I mean, I, I really, really, really like it. I mean, it's got so many good features on it from sort of listening to sort of, sort of music that, that's been released over the years and, and you know Harry will pick some sort of random German German team song or something like that and, and I imagine well you mentioned this earlier but it must be great to sort of have someone like Harry Pearson alongside you doing it it's brilliant and, and just hearing because they're from a different you know I think probably the conclusion of this chat is our it's in our teens that we're most obsessed with football so it's the 90s for us but it's the 70s for them and so I've loved just hearing stories from a different completely different time of people I've rarely heard of and I just love to sit back and listen really um th- you know it's every fortnight thinking of a, a random topic that the random topic generator is going to generate to let the uh, light in upon magic <laughs> it's quite hard but um it's it's brilliant it's, it, it really was a very important thing for me through a lot 
lockdown as well, having that the own literally the only thing on my calendar at times, eleven a.m. Thursday every fortnight, speaking to those two. So yeah, and as it was a, a, a magazine that I loved as a reader as a teenager, from Cotton Thorpe News Agents, Mister Oates, through to through to reading it through my twenties and, and then writing for it in my thirties, it's it's brilliant to be even near that that institution. And I mean, one of the features that I particularly love is is the sort of the football museum, the virtual football museum that you've got at the end of each each sort of episode and you ask a guest for a, an artifact a player and a match to go in this sort of mythical uh, football museum and, and I kind of wondered what what your what you would put into that museum if you had the choice yeah you did you did pre-warn me so I don't sound completely spontaneous here <laughs> like because I'm terrible at thinking of... well I said pre-warn you it was about about five minutes before we came on to record I mean I didn't want to give you too long it, it was it was <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick to York ones because it's easier if you, if you narrow down like that. So my player would be John McCarthy, who I just loved from the minute I first saw him. There's not many players that you can remember their running style or the way they moved, but I can really remember how he moved with his head down, sort of coat hanger, shoulders, uh, running in, always running in a line, it felt like to me, like one of those Tommy Super Cup footballers that went up and down that board for batteries in it. <laughs> Just but a wonderful football. That shouldn't denigrate from the fact that just his pace, his crossing ability from the touchline, the amount of goals he made, and the fact he was from Middlesbrough made that that brilliant link that I had. It, it, you know, York had a lot of players like that down the years that have been from Middlesbrough, been Middlesbrough youth players, and I've always enjoyed those those links. Uh, it feels important to me, really, with my dual identity. And and so John McCarthy, every time, just love closing my eyes and picturing him on that wing, just hogging that touchline. Macmillan and McCarthy, they can't have been a better right side in, in York history or, or many clubs as well, I think. A match, I'll, I'll pick a match that rather than Man City, December 19th, I loved that or Everton or Man United or any of those ones those brilliant ones where I went on the pitch after I'll pick one that sums up a bit more realistically what supporting York has been like and that is in February 96 auto windscreen shield Millmore 4-1 4-1 away at Rotherham. It's the first time I remember going to a York away game on my own or on a, it was Towton Minster men used to, a few of my mates from Tad um, went on the, on the bus to that one. And uh, Nicky Peverell scored another Middlesbrough York link. I remember that. I also remember it was the first time I saw Pucker Pies because I'm not convinced they made it to the, to North Yorkshire at that point. Um, just, just, uh, it just stands out as one of those York experiences away and that in my head, the, the floor was wooden though. I might be thinking of, of Gig Lane, but I just pictured that, that little ground so well and the, the atmosphere and, and being among York fans and losing 4-1 and trudging back on a school night that is more a more realistic choice than going for one of the great days in the 90s and as an object well, I mentioned the £1 programme bundles. They were magnificent pocket money purchases. There used to be a bundle of programmes from all over the country and, and many areas that you could get in that shop at Move and Crescent. But if you can call it an object, I've sort of mentioned this, but I'll have the £1 transfer booth that took you into the popular stand from the Dave Longhurst. A work of art, a beautiful thing. I, I fear that it's just been destroyed. It should have ended up in someone's garden at least. But it, it, well, I think if it was on the auction, I think you would have, have bid in for that as well. <laughs> yeah, it would have been all over. <laughs> it could have been the security man's thing to sit in as he let people through my turnstile but yeah I, I loved that that thing I, th- that day when I walked around the door was open so I went inside for the first time magnificent so we'll have that in the mu- in the museum Dan <laughs> what, what a great selection I really really enjoyed that so so bringing it back to the back to the book I mean I, I really do think it'll be a you know it'll stand the test of time in terms of sort of being a great point of reference I think for what 
remembering what football was like during the pandemic. I mean, even though we're only talking a couple of years ago, really, I was reading it and it felt like such a long time ago that this was sort of all happening. And, and like you were sort of saying about the variants and stuff like that, it feels like an age now. That even though we, we're kind of people still get COVID now, don't they? But it just feels like it's it's different now. There's not the same. Uh, I mean, I coughed at work today, but if I'd have coughed at work a couple of years ago, people would have been, oh my God, he's got COVID, you know, and, and give me a wide berth. And it's, it seems to have got back to some sort of normality. And obviously, crowds are in, you know, in stadiums now and stuff like that. It does feel like back to how it was. Yeah, it's it's remembering phrases like rule of six and stuff like that that's just gone out of your head that was such a big thing, working out who you could see when and where. And the little things like I was remembering, I went, it's only did about a page on this in the book, but to Carlisle City, so the other club in Carlisle. And I just remember today that I went in the rail sporting club next door the social club next door sorry and that the bar woman you had to order at the bar but then she had to she couldn't take payment at the bar she had to come over for the payment and bring you the change and you're just thinking how did we end up like that with these mishmash rules (laughs) but yeah somehow we're back to normality and I I think in that first season which ended up being brilliant for York obviously at first it was it was just so boisterous and louder than I'd remembered it being for years and teams had honeymoon periods where it didn't matter so much the results in the first few but now it's back to its its moaning normal and, and York have played along with that quite nicely with recent events, I think. Absolutely. And I saw that you, your mum had sent you a picture of your book the other day in Waterstones, which which was a nice um, tweet that, that you put out. So I, I guess it's okay for me to say that old phrase, you know, available in all good bookshops for people. I mean, is it available in crap bookshops as well? Is it? I hope so. It'd be, nice, it'd be in the bargain bin somewhere within a year, won't it? And <laughs> in a, yeah, one of those one of those type of places. But yeah, the Waterstones moment was great because coming into town on the thirteen bus and and standing at their sports sections and reading most of the football books without buying them was a, was a big part of my uh, youth. So obviously, it's a different place where the shop is now. But that was a brilliant thing. But yeah, all the usual places are. Or, or I sell them direct if you want them dedicated. Daniel Gray Wright. Com. Well, well, Dan, it's been a you know great having you on and, and great to speak to you as always. And I hope we can go out for a pint again soon. I look forward to it, Dan. Thanks for having me. I love the podcast, as you know. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. This has been the first episode for quite a long time now. This is the biggest break I've had between podcast episodes. It's just uh, circumstances, but I'm well on the way to um, actually doing another series. I know I said I would probably just do specials from now on, but such is life and, and the way kind of contacts get thrown your way. I've definitely working towards doing a full series and that'll be sort of series 10 in the new year. A couple of them already been recorded. Alan Little and Dennis Smith, so two legendary managers of York City and, and I'm sure people really enjoy the results of that and um, I look forward to that in the new year. As ever, if you like these podcasts, please do donate to our charity, York Hospital Radio. We've got a Just Giving page, justgiving.com forward slash York Hospital Radio. Appreciate that it's been a difficult year with sort of cost of living and all that sort of stuff going up. But even even a pound or two pound is greatly received. All, all the kind of money goes towards the, the charity providing a service for people in hospital, which Christmas time, people um, in hospitals providing a service is, is, I'm sure you'll agree, a great thing. So the more money we can kind of generate, the, the better service we can provide for those people. So um, if you can donate, that would be great. If you can't, uh, other ways you can help the podcast, you know, giving us a, a rating on Spotify, I think there's a kind of rate this podcast at the, at the top there 
thanks to everyone who's done that before. I think we're, we're, we're still kind of at five star, which is incredible. And uh, if you listen on Apple, any sort of review that you can give us is, is again, greatly received and really helps us. And um, yeah, just, just spreading the word. We're still finding a lot of people saying, oh, I've just discovered this. I've only listened to this episode. I need to catch up on the back catalogue. So still obviously fair amount of York City fans out there who don't know about it. So if you can kind of spread the word, check people have listened to it and uh, point them in the direction of, of yeah, um, Spotify or, or Captivate, which is our main home for, for the podcast. So uh, like I said, I'll be back in the new year with a, a brand new series and um, you know, keep kind of eyes and ears peeled for that one. And, um, and yeah, thanks for, thanks for all your support this year. Um, I think many people know the, the kind of things I've been through so I always appreciate people uh, checking in on me and, and, and seeing how I'm doing and, and kind of supporting the podcast as they have done so um, yeah really really appreciate that thank you for everything that, that people have kind of done for me over the past year and um, yeah hopefully I can reward you with some good episodes in the new year thanks <laughs>